Dot.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. I'm Nico. And I'm Kevo. And this is MCU.html, and we're here to finally discuss Joss Whedon's last movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to date. Bye, bitch. Yeah, you know, I love Joss. I love Joss so much. I think he did a great job. And, you know, without his Avengers, there would be no modern superhero film. He paved the way for so much and created so many incredible moments that we love, and it just doesn't come together here. Yeah, as far as a follow-up film to the original, especially knowing how hard he worked throughout Phase 2 to get the things he needed for this film. You know, I hoped I would enjoy it more going into watching it this time, and I enjoyed a lot of things about it, but I really did, I just don't enjoy the core of this film, which is sad. It does have a lot of weird symptoms of second movie syndrome that sort of My job here is to tie everything together so everything can make sense. It's this weird thing that Marvel Cinematic Universe movies get where there are the ones that matter and there are the ones that feel like trailers for the ones that matter. Yeah, and a lot of Phase 2, as we've been discussing, mostly feels like trailer for Phase 3. And it's not that it's a bad trailer, but nobody likes filler. Even when you enjoy filler, when you're waiting to get to the good stuff, you can't enjoy filler. And there's sort of a weird question that comes to mind when we were discussing this. When the Avengers franchise began with Iron Man, what we were discussing was a home video market, a DVD release market. Now we're discussing a streaming market and streaming platforms and Disney Plus is really changing everything because all of the Marvel Cinematic Movies are going to be in one place with one streaming service and one price. I'm not trying to sell anybody on anything because I know that's not a selling point for everyone. But with all of that in mind, it's going to become so much easier to marathon the Marvel Cinematic Universe and just bang it out like seasons of a TV show. Things like... Age of Ultron are going to feel little more than a blip on the radar because while we maybe did a slightly more aggressively critical piece, Guardians 1 has a pretty strong following and a really terrific critical review, and we even agreed there was a lot of positive about the film. But in a lot of ways, this movie is just sort of sandwiched between other bigger things. It's no more a kind of eh than Ant-Man if you're just streaming all of these movies one after another. And here's something I must say as well. I really want to talk about the historical context of what was going on at the time that Age of Ultron was being produced and when it came out. So it was released in May of 2015. So we're talking almost four years ago now. At the time, having Wanda and Pietro be in this film was absolutely uncanny because of everything going on with character rights. Uh, It was... I believe the Iron Man premiere in 2013 that he first hinted that a certain brother and sister duo were going to be appearing, and I believe we were in shock. I don't think you believed it at first. 
I kept thinking it had to be Fenrir. So yeah. the Von Struckers get a really weird half look from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's a lot of things about comics that do and don't work over the years. And one of the things that people sometimes forget when they're adapting these projects and these works is they're adapting things that came out during different eras and different forms of storytelling were okay and there was a little bit more room in the world for some white supremacist Nazis mm. in fiction because they didn't resemble the people that were in our governing bodies. And there were a few more ridiculous things once upon a time, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe is not going to go the route of the Marvel Comics Universe where a number of twins needed to be touching for their powers to work. Yeah. Now, in the case of North Star and Aurora two mutants from Alpha Flight, North Star was gay, so it wasn't a whole lot of ooh incesty stuff. But in the case of Fenrir, the Von Strucker children, well, there's a lot of weird incesty stuff down to when she died and he still wanted to use his powers. He now has uh, some of her skin sewn into the blade, the hilt of his sword, and he uses a sword now. And so he literally holds his dead sister's skin to use his powers. And while normally incest would be an uncomfortable topic to try and pivot away from, I can actually use it very well here because the project that Elizabeth Olsen and Aaron Taylor Johnson did before Age of Ultron was the Brian Cranston remake of Godzilla, where they played a married couple with a child. That's just icky. It really is. It's like the couple from The Fault in Our Stars played brother and sister in whatever Hunger Games ripoff she was the star of, like... You know, actors can't help the roles that they had, but it's still really squicky when that happens. Especially because there are specifically versions of the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver who are incestuous with one another. Which did not happen here, thankfully, but more the point. So we knew back in 2013 that this was going to be an element of the film. Then came the Sony Pictures email hack of November of 2014, which revealed that there were talks about having Spider-Man join the MCU for Civil War, but that they'd broken down. Until February of 2015, when it was officially announced, yup, Spidey's definitely coming back. But in the time where they didn't know if they were getting Spider-Man, they started elevating the role of Black Panther in Civil War to sort of take that figure's place. Once Spider-Man was announced to be a part of Civil War, I definitely remember we were concerned that his role was going to be reduced. Thankfully, it wasn't. But consider all of these things that we were thinking about as we were going into seeing Ultron. It was announced in the months leading up to Ultron that literally the entire cast of Ultron, all the Avengers, basically, except Thor, were going to be returning one year later for Civil War, including the new character of Scarlet Witch, and including two brand new Avengers characters, Black Panther and Spider-Man. So we're going into Age of Ultron knowing already that this is going to be sort of a letdown of an Avengers film. The real exciting event is Civil Civil War coming a year later. And that makes me wonder how far in advance they sort of knew that they didn't have Avengers assemble on their hands here. To distinguish between Avengers is sort of as the brand and the film, let's go with Avengers Assemble for the name of the first film, for argument's sake, because that was the international name anyway. I like that name better anyway. So they had to know at this point that they didn't have another Avengers assembled on their hands. And it's in all of the ways in which this is a much slower film. Not to mention, it does seem as though this film and 
Uh, this film is sort of the reason that Joss Whedon left the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It wasn't just that it was a poorly received film, but it does appear that there was a bit of back and forth behind the scenes. So I can't think of any better time to kick it to the behind the scenes of Age of Ultron. Kevo, tell us. Tell us all about it. Well, the thing about this team on this film is none of them are really new. As I said last episode, the cinematographer here is once again Ben Davis. It's pretty cool that he does back-to-back Marvel movies. His next Marvel Cinematic Universe film is Doc Strange, which means that he does one a year for three years, even though the next one is two removed. And he will return this year in 2019 to be the cinematographer for Captain Marvel. So that's four out of 22 films, same cinematographer. That's pretty cool. And then we get to composers. This is the only new element for this film because this film had Danny Elfman doing some of the score, which feels kind of like a strange choice, or at least that's what I thought at the time. Everything about this movie had some really strange choices to it. We'll get to it in a moment, but a lot of weird decisions went into this film. The more I think about Ultron, Ultron's design, even the color red they used for his eyes at times, I can't think of a better composer than Danny Elfman. But Danny Elfman being here, yeah, it just comes out of nowhere. Absolutely. I always think of Danny Elfman more as like the Edward Scissorhands, Beetlejuice, Nightmare Before Christmas guy, and and even Pee-wee, the Pee-wee movies in the 80s. But as I was going over his filmography, it really jumped out at me how many superhero films he had in his repertoire before this. The first two Batman films, Dick Tracy is a comic film, Mission Impossible is an action film, Men in Black is based on a comic, sort of, but not really. Even then, Men in Black is actually a terrific comic book movie movie. End of the day, it's a visually comic book movie. I couldn't remember if he did the score for Men in Black because all I can ever think of um, is Men in Black by Will Smith. So I guess in that way, Danny Elfin was kind of sending me forget-me-nots. Anyway, yeah, it makes sense that he did the music to that. Well, the thing I was surprised that I hadn't considered or realized before is this, this wasn't his first Marvel film. He scored the first two Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films, and he scored Ang Lee's Hulk. Well, you know, uh, I can't believe we just named so many movies scored by Danny Elfman that do not feature Johnny Depp. Right? And I can't believe they're not all directed by Tim Burton. And I feel like that means I'm pigeonholing Danny Elfman. I'm putting Danny Elfman in that creepy... Nicole Kidman white kind of stringy long hair guy club. And evidently, I'm underselling his redheaded Oingo Boingo-ness. Okay, but if it makes you feel any better, I can recontextualize it by saying uh, Danny Elfman's upcoming jobs are this year's Dumbo film, which means that Dumbo has Danny Elfman scoring. It has the cinematographer from this film that Danny Elfman worked on doing the cinematography, and that film also stars Michael Keaton and Danny DeVito. So I didn't know where you were going with that, and for a second I got really confused, and I thought you were about to say, and Helena Bonham Carter is playing Dumbo. So, and I was about to be very confused. Johnny Depp is the magic feather. You know he probably tried to let Helena Bonham Carter be Mama Jumbo. Let's not even front. If she doesn't sing Baby Mine, I'll be shocked. 
It's a very macabre version. Baby line. So to put a little context on that, I'm an enormous Sondheim fan. I know you're all surprised terribly. I am not the biggest fan of Sweeney Todd featuring Helen and Bottom Carter and Johnny Depp. It is not. It was re. It was. It was even rearranged. There was no reason to rearrange it. That's enough about me complaining about movie musicals. Wait for the podcast where we compare musicals to movies. Just wait for it. Yeah, that'll be fun. Another project that he has upcoming that I had not heard anything about, which shocks me, is, y'all, Robert Downey Jr. is trying to go for another film franchise. Danny Elfman is doing the score for The Voyage of Dr. Doolittle, which is based on the original Dr. Doolittle novel, which is about an adventurer veterinarian who can talk to animals. It's coming out a year from now, and it's like, Got celebrities in it, y'all. Antonio Banderas, John Cena is playing a polar bear, Tom Holland is playing a dog, and Selena Gomez is playing a giraffe. Like, oodles of celebrity cameos. It's wild. It's interesting that he only did two Sherlock Holmes films and is trying to launch yet another franchise. But, I mean, hey, Robert Downey Jr., Chris Pratt, if you guys got the franchises in you, keep getting it. You know, I didn't learn until today that Frank Grillo is 55, which means he was like... 50 when he made Captain America the Winter Soldier. My point being, exactly like you're saying, Robert Downey Jr., Paul Rudd, Mark Ruffalo, all these dudes that are like starting to reach 60 and are still being like action heroes. Good for you. You get it. Danny Elfman obviously did not work alone on this film, as I have been mentioning leading up to this episode. Brian Tyler also did work with him. It was so weird looking at the soundtrack because it seems they did not work together. They are credited for individual tracks for each other, which I find very strange. But what I found even stranger is not the first time that Brian Tyler and Danny Elfman's music has appeared in the same film before. As I mentioned a few episodes, a song co-written for Seal by Brian Tyler appeared in the Nicolas Cage movie The Family Man, for which Danny Elfman was the composer. And what a way to bring it back to our home network. Hey, Cage Club, see? We talk about Nicolas Cage even places he doesn't make any sense. It's also really unusual that these two guys would share a score, I guess, unless it's one of those things maybe, maybe Tim Burton was like... Danny Elfman, click, clack, click, click, because I assume Tim Burton has scissor hands. Click, clack, click, clack, I need you. And I assume he keeps Danny Elfman in his basement. So, yeah, absolutely. And click, clack, click, clack, you have to help me direct the new Beetlegeist movie that's not coming out. Back in the basement. I need more Oingo Boingo music. Uh, absolutely. I think that that's absolutely what probably happened here. And instead, they brought in Bonnie Tyler to totally clips of the score. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know why. I think it's cool that they went out of their way to use themes from Captain America, Iron Man 3, and the Thor franchise in this film. I'll shout it out when we get it to it in my notes, but there's definitely a point at which you can hear the Iron Man 3 theme. I'm pretty sure it's when he busts out the Hulkbuster armor. And I think there's probably points at which I can, you can hear Cap's theme. So it's it's a really cool way to promote cohesion between all of these films and emphasize the fact that they live in the same universe. You know, it's not just about the costume. It's not just about the actor. It's, it's about so many things. And music impacts us in so many ways. We tie these themes to these characters. So, and I know Brian Tyler wrote the Iron Man one, and I know he worked on Thor. So maybe that's part of why they didn't work together together i honestly am not sure and 
I really like that you said something about the cohesion of score bringing things together because I do think as we continue to traverse the MCU, we're going to get to phase three where every other movie is a solo movie team movie, solo movie team movie. And some of the team movies are labeled as solo movies, but there is no chance that Civil War is a Captain America movie. No. It's just not. There's too much going on there. Ragnarok is not solely a Thor movie. It's Thor and Hulk. And frankly, Valkyrie gets quite a bit to do, and it plays so much into the bigger picture. So it's going to start alternating solo team, solo team. And I really do think things like the intensity of the score is really going to be something that helps make sense of how Black Panther, Ragnarok, and Homecoming can all be in the same universe. Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty much it on those elements of behind the scenes. The only other person to discuss who is majorly influential on the film is the person who is both screenwriter and director, the one and only Joseph Whedon. Because yes, that is correct. Every time someone calls him Josh, they're being even more insulting because Joss is short for Joseph. To be honest, though, so much of this film revolves around his vision and his story. It's going to be hard not to talk about Joss Whedon as a filmmaker, as a creator, as a writer, as we go along. Frankly, I think we can just dive right in. I can't think of a better way to do it. You're Shirley Schmidt of Crane Pool and... Schmidt. Alan Shore, it's a pleasure. Surely you intend to watch that first. I keep an extremely clean penis. There's something really interesting about the way we've noticed so many of these Marvel films break out on the half an hour. However, there is something unbelievable about how Ultron breaks out on the half an hour. We've talked a bit about how Joss Whedon had some issues with the studio. And rather than discuss a lot of what went into or what didn't go into Ultron, we're going to talk about the film as it is and a number of the prevalent themes that run recurrent throughout. You ready to do this? Yeah. We open up on one of the most dynamically slow Avengers opening battles. I can imagine. It's weird because I also thought the Winter Soldier opened up on kind of like a boring dynamic battle. I felt this was a much more dynamic battle, but I think the boringness of this battle is, for me, the epitome of the problem with the opening of this film. Even though it is, you know, said in dialogue, I don't feel as a viewer that I really fully got exactly what was going on. That this was the final Hydra stronghold, that they were done, that the Avengers were splitting back up after this and going back to doing their own thing. Because it's such a weird choice to open on this final onslaught to open on the fact that the Avengers have been going on these adventures apparently for months going after Hydra agents that had been revealed from Captain America Winter Soldier. And I actually, I've seen this movie as many times as you have, I think. And we every time we talk about it, I keep being like, wait, whose retirement party are we cutting to again? Is Tony retiring from some board? Like, it just doesn't stick that that's supposed to be what's happening here. I think because in some ways the audience also does see what it wants to see. I don't think that we necessarily, you know, we're used to seeing there's some fancy cocktail party for who cares what reason ever since the first film with Tony Stark. I think there's at least like three fancy parties in that movie. So we just sort of tune out. Why are they having this party? Eh, They're they're just having fun. They're allowed to have fun. And that's something we enjoy. But... To get back to this fight sequence, this fight sequence sets up so many of the integral recurring plots of the film, 
and the first scene. This movie is ultimately Joss Whedon's existential crisis on parenthood, life, and death. And while the life and death stuff mostly gets kind of shuttered off in favor of the parenthood stuff, specifically in this cut, the idea that the beginning is on the ending Mm. is a very interesting idea because the last movie began on the end of the world. So for this movie, the stakes aren't as high, but the severity of the ending is just as great. Yeah, I definitely see that. And I think... All of those themes, the way that this movie starts media res and is really more a bridge into the next phase, it's all part of the same thing, of this really being a middle film. And unfortunately, I feel a lot of the things about it then get muddled. This is uh, this is Baron Von Strucker, who's the hot dude at the beginning, the Hydra agent that they're facing off against, I believe. Yeah, it's Baron Von Strucker. Who, you know, I, it's, uh, and like, so that is a major Marvel Comics character. And it's a little bit like, who was it uh, from Winter Soldier? Pietrov at the very beginning? Yes. You're putting these major characters in these minor roles where they seem completely inconsequential. And when you look at Avengers Age of Ultron, when you reflect it against Winter Soldier like that, and, and that similar use of a major character, it's too many villains. And I guess it was different in the Tim Burton Batman era, because at least, you know, Catwoman and Penguin were working together, Poison Ivy and Mr. Freeze were working together. And Bane. And Bane. Don't forget Bane and Peggy. But this is just a random villain that they're defeating at the very beginning of this movie who we've only ever seen once before in a mid-credits sequence and that's the only bearing he has on the entire film that stronghold is going to be very important throughout the film because we see that that's where ultron retreats to and it's the hydra facilities that he uses to build up his little army but then again at the same time if they just took down this facility shouldn't there be like a shield presence there shouldn't there be like police tape Or is that what we're supposed to understand, that they care that little about Sokovia? But now I'm just sort of rambling. But you're rambling really important, really good questions. Any of these sort of like, huh, moments about Avengers Assemble were mostly shruggable. Mm -hmm. You could just kind of chalk them up to, well, comic book logic. But here, they're trying to sell us on the real-world implications and the practical realities of a world with superheroes. We're no longer just dealing with superheroes. They're trying to say, look at the fallout, look at reality, look how complicated it is. So when that's what you're trying to say, you can't be so general. Mm. And speaking of so general and things getting kind of complicated, I want to talk for a moment about the three big things in this sequence that become major plot points for me. We have the Maximoff's introduction. We see Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. It's kind of a a weird moment. I don't think they come off very clear. We get the sun's getting low and Widow trying to convince Hulk to banner back down. And we have Tony's nightmare. The Widow and Hulk thing, I'm fine with it. I don't know that I even ship it. I don't know that I ever shipped it, but... It's what they did. It's what they told me I'm getting, so I just need to take it. It's one of those things where I like both of the characters, and I don't hate them together, so I mostly just want them to be happy. But 
it it is very strange. Like I mentioned in the Avengers episode, you can kind of see seeds of it, or at least you can see where those two characters clearly have a connection from the beginning. But you know, the the extreme romance stuff does seem to come a little out of left field, especially when we've seen Widow since her last appearance in the Avengers. We saw her in Winter Soldier. She didn't seem to have any sort of connection with Bruce then. And it didn't feel very much like the place to put it. Because I instantly understood they were trying to tell us, oh, there's some romance here. But it doesn't belong in the field, no matter what. It just doesn't belong in the middle of this fight, in the middle of this battle. I would also like to know how many post-hypnotic suggestions Joss has written down to use in future things because all of the sun's getting real low stuff is very evocative of his show Dollhouse to me where you had did I fall asleep for a little while there was a sleeper agent whose activation code was there are three flowers in a vase the third flower is red he's got a lot of these very clever poetic methods of bringing people in and out of delusional states in his fiction and i just i would love to know what notebook he has where he's been like that's a good one i gotta write that down i would also love to know what is a foot there stop something about footnote and we move on so i think tony's nightmare is probably the best worst best worst moment in the movie it's best worst worst best best worst best west worst best northeast west west north by west i think the problem with this scene is that it is actually just his worst nightmare it's not truly a vision of the future but later on thor has a true vision of the future Mm, yeah so there's this sort of weird disconnect that makes that whole bit feel kind of dumb you know i have another weird Whedon connection to make to that. There's a villain in the seventh season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the first evil, who has the ability to appear as dead people. There's a specific episode where it appears to several of the characters, but one of the characters, Dawn, sees a vision of her mother, and Joss Whedon has always been very ambiguous as to whether or not that was the first, whether it was really her mother, and it's so fucking weird though to do something like that to do a film like this where one of your character's abilities is to give people nightmare visions that bring out their greatest fears and then also on the side have a character go to a different place to get a different kind of vision but that vision is okay and he can trust that because question mark it's certainly playing different parts of how this story can come together against itself It's one of the first big hiccups because one of the things that has hurt Age of Ultron aging is that in so many ways it has nothing to do with what Infinity War actually is. And it doesn't really connect to Infinity War. Even the Thanos appearance in the post-credit scene or mid-credit scene is not true to the Marvel Cinematic Universe in any other way. And specifically that vision, a lot of people have pointed to Tony's nightmare over the years as potential seeding for Infinity War and what we now know to be Endgame. But honestly, there's literally nothing from it that has anything to do. It is That vision is self-contained to this and his fears following the Battle of New York. Nothing that he sees is in any way anything to do with Thanos. I also thought it was interesting that of all of the Avengers, the only one who is sitting up and alive and seems fine is Hawkeye. Everyone else is down on the ground, but Hawkeye is sitting up, seated, 
which is especially interesting when you think about how so many people thought Hawkeye would bite it in this one. I guess it's, you know, Hawkeye every minute is a nightmare. So there's just, <laughs> he's just going to sit back and enjoy the ride. He's the one I'm stuck with. Crap. I also thought Steve was unbelievably out of character in his nightmare. And like, I get it. And I'm really actually into this vision, establishing and starting the path of this film as we keep talking about it so much, but the Loki revelation and knowing that he was mind controlled, Wanda's powers come from the mind stone. And that energy is what was used to make Tony so paranoid that he pushed forward with Ultron without even thinking. Everything in this film is affected by the infinity gem of minds power, but still Steve going, you couldn't save us. Like there, we constantly watch things where I'm like, if somebody made me think that something bad about Nico by having him say this, I would just laugh because I know that's so out of character and he would never even say that. I do agree that we're about to enter a period of time in the Marvel Cinematic Universe where it's kind of like, how far can we push Tony Stark and Iron Man because we like Robert Downey Jr. and his performance? And to that point, I would love to get into creating Ultron. Now, those of you who know the comics know that Hank Pym created Ultron, and we'll get into a whole bit about that later on in this universe. It's kind of Bruce and Tony working together, and it's treated more like it's just Tony. Yeah, Bruce definitely has some amount of responsibility. That's very clear from the beginning of the film, but it's hard to have a climactic confrontation between three people, especially when one of them their ability makes them a little bit mindless, so he couldn't really be a part of that. It could theoretically be a metaphor about how little fathers have to do with the procreation process. I don't know. But either way, Ultron is very clearly the baby of these two parents. Which does lead to some really interesting things. I have long mentioned when talking about the comic book universe, there's kind of this endless who's the smartest man challenge Reed Richards is absolutely one of the smartest men in the Marvel Comics universe. T'Challa is one of the smartest men in the Marvel Comics universe. These are people who you can be like, oh, no, he's up there. Oh, no, he's up there. Hank Pym is up there. Namor is one of the greatest thinkers, although he's always, you know, beating people to death. I do want to point out that Tony's like, Bruce, you're the only one who's good at biogenetic math. I thought Bruce was good at gamma shit. What? No, now you're just like... Everyone has multiple science fields. It's like secondary abilities in an anime. You get it when you need it in the next movie. I understand. But there is something very – that Tony's like, I don't know how to do this. I started doing it. I've taken it this far. But now I need you, you to come in, who has had nothing to do with this project. And now you're going to come in and you're going to run the ball all the way down the field. And we're going to score a home run and it's going to be the best. And we're going to win the World Cup. And we're going to get a hat trick. You know – I hadn't noticed that moment, but you saying that triggered for me something that happens later when they mention Wakanda for the first time in the MCU at 42 minutes in this film. And Bruce has never heard of Wakanda before. I understand it's a small nation, and I understand that, you know, whatever, but I'm pretty sure it would be documented that that's where any amount of vibranium on Earth came from, and he is a scientist who would know what vibranium is. I'm just shocked that he literally has never heard of it before, and, you know, they're doing a lot of weird stuff with Bruce's intelligence in this movie. They do a lot of weird stuff with Bruce in general. I'd made a comment to Kevo that I felt that unless your name led a movie— 
you really do get the shaft in a lot of ways, but I feel like you could actually cut together films of characters by stringing all of their scenes together. Black Widow would have three movies or so by stringing her together. I feel Falcon would have one really strong movie of a bunch of really cool appearances. And I think Bruce gets the worst consistency treatment of the main core six. Hawkeye is really consistent. He's boring. Yeah. And it's it's actually really crazy because the more I think about it, Hawkeye's scenes in Thor were written by Joss Whedon. Joss Re- Whedon wrote Avengers Assemble. Joss Whedon wrote Age of Ultron. There is so little Hawkeye that is not written by Joss Whedon. And he stands for this incredible everyman, boring kind of, aren't I easy to relate to? And he's not. And you know what? In point of fact, that then means that the only people who have written Hawkeye are Joss Whedon and the Marcus McFeely duo, because they wrote Captain America Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame. So Hawkeye has only ever been written by three people in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It is a really interesting point as well, because I think we're meant to connect emotionally more with Hawkeye than we do, but... We're going to discover over and over again while discussing this movie, unless it is the scenes specifically, uniquely about Hawkeye, Hawkeye doesn't fucking matter. Hawkeye could be lifted out of this movie, almost as though Jeremy Renner had some tough press and might have needed to come out at one point for some supposed unpleasant behavior, neither here nor there right now. Bruce and Tony create Ultron to be the world's greatest peacekeeping service so that you won't need any more Avengers. And that leads to the inevitable AI nightmare. Once someone says, you're talking about creating AI. And another person's like, I'm talking about creating B. Yeah, unfortunately, the letters after A and I would be B and J. And I wanted to be like, you know, it's it's one better in both directions. It's BJ. It's and I you know what? I would take a blowjob over artificial intelligence sometimes, I guess. Yeah. So. You know, he wants to create the ultimate robo blowjob, and Bruce is in. And one of the things that I love about Tony's ultimate robo blowjob, though, is specifically the fact that he's doing it out of humanitarianism. He doesn't want to create Ultron. Obviously, I was kidding about the blowjob, and I mean Ultron. But he's ultimately creating Ultron from a place of wanting to protect the world. I, In going back to watch this movie again, I'd been concerned that they would throw in even just a single line of Tony being like, let's just do it to do it. And that would have been really ugly to reflect on when you know how much devastation it's going to cause. But no, the entire time, all Tony is saying is that he wants to protect the world. He wants to create a suit of armor for the world. His goal is admirable, even if ultimately it doesn't result in something good. It ultimately does result in wholesale murder, but... Most of Tony's best plans result in wholesale murder when they're put into the wrong robot. And on a personal side, I'm bored. I beg your pardon. You people keep assigning me these boring cases. At my old firm, I got murderers. I had clients who would touch themselves in public restrooms. These are people you could root for, not to mention relate to. Is there some other place you'd rather be, Mr. Shaw? Yes, I want to be on cable. That does bring us to, however, The Amazing Retirement Party, which is just like nonstop great scene moment after nonstop great scene moment. I really could have believed they filmed the rap party in character. Oh, yeah, yes. 100%. 
I want to point out, though, before we get to the obvious drama we have to get to, some of the magic of some of the moments that we get captured. I don't know how Joss Whedon can do it, but he can get people to be so human and yeah. so natural because whether it's Thor and Stan Lee and Cap sharing the most powerful mead ever or it's Thor and... Tony arguing over whose oh girlfriend is infinitely smarter and better because they're not saying sexy. They're not saying no. hotter. They're not saying they're not saying any horrible misogynistic thing. They're saying who's who's a more successful woman in her field. And I literally gasped when Thor said Jane's better. I was not expecting that. I'd completely forgotten. And it really shows how Thor is already on the road to being less of like the serious Shakespearean guy he was at the start of his franchise and the funnier character we're going to see in Ragnarok. There's an amazing deleted scene that Tom Hiddleston detailed that is maybe the funniest line of Thor ever and I'm so mad it didn't make it into any film because it's just not fair we deserved it so this retirement party packs in so many incredible characters oh and actually yeah you did point out I just wanted to make sure that it was stated you know fully for the record Stamio right here this early Stanley once again appears as a veteran this time at the party and this time gets to drunkenly exclaim his catchphrase Excelsior Excelsior! Stan, we did a, a loving tribute to you on Excess for Podcast. Losing Stan Lee was really sad. No matter what anybody wants to say about his legacy, the man did create so many heroes that inspired me to not just be sad, sick, and tired. So I will always, for the rest of my life, love Stan Lee and what he gave, having gotten to physically have him walk past my table at New York Comic Con multiple times. And I've said it before, it's like this magical moment where I know he had no idea who I was, and it wasn't like he stopped and was like, Kid Riot, Excelsior, this book! And he just kind of kept walking, you know, but... For that moment, we were both comics professionals, and if it hadn't been for him, I couldn't be in that space. Absolutely. And it's part of why I'm glad that this is his cameo for this, you know, the first Avengers film. He's that guy at the end on the newsreel who's saying, superheroes in New York? Ridiculous. And now he gets to be, like, at this party with all the Avengers. I think that's really cute. I also really, really love this sequence. A lot of scenes where it's not plot-heavy and it's just characters interacting can really slow down a film but especially because of the wealth of characters they were able to insert here. We see the Falcon, even though we're not going to see him as part of the cavalry later in the battle. He's just here and at the Avengers complex hanging out. It's just a really cool sequence. And on the subject of the Falcon being there, while unfortunately Pepper and Jane did have to miss the movie, as a matter of fact, we have already said goodbye to Jane Foster for the rest of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as far as we know, Hmm. right? We do actually have, I think, a record number of women and characters of color in this sequence. Oh, absolutely. We have the incredible Rhodey. We have my aforementioned Sam. Oh, good gracious. We have Natasha, Maria Hill, Helen Cho. Like, seriously, that is five women or characters of color. And that's anywhere near enough. But I can only think of a handful of white men that match in this scene. 
Yeah, and let's take 10 seconds just to talk about Helen Cho, who is a completely original character to the MCU. They needed a doctor, a scientist, to be the person to create this resurrection cradle. They could have gone with anything, and they specifically went with making her a woman of color. And I think that's super important. It's really disappointing that within her introduction scene, she also highlights the fact that she is heterosexual by saying she wants to meet Thor. But, hey, two out of three ain't bad. I like to think she's a nod to Amadeus Cho, smartest boy in the world. Yes. Who is a and a very important and incredibly lovable, really great. There's a phenomenal comic book writer named Greg Pak. And if you're somebody who looks for a, a narrative voice you enjoy as opposed to a character or, or a title, I would definitely look up Greg Pak. He has a really strong, powerful voice. He's really relatable. His characters rarely suffer from any kind of disappointing tropes and he's done runs on just about every character in the marvel and dc universe at this point and his hulk is up there with the most beloved of all time he's the guy behind planet hulk so we love his work he's a really talented writer and he's a super good guy anyway i think the retirement party takes a deep sudden dramatic turn when ultron starts being like i'm going to punch you now and jarvis starts being like oh dear oh dear and Ultron's like, punch, punch. And I just kept thinking to myself, it's a good scene, but I kind of feel like it's a deleted scene from Hackers. It felt a little like, it felt like I was in Epcot in 1994 and they were showing me the Bell Atlantic logo changing the world with color and these two colors duking it out. I shudder to think what that scene would have looked like even 10 years earlier. I think it's very beautifully, excellently executed. But when you have two AIs arguing with each other, and then one starts punching the other one, you know, you've got the scene you've got. Yeah, you've got what you've got. I also, before he got attacked even, I noticed that Jarvis sounded really weird in this movie. I feel like it was probably done on purpose so that they didn't have to do anything to Paul Bettany's voice once he became Vision, but he still didn't wouldn't sound exactly like Jarvis did in the film. But I was like, why did you eat a peanut butter sandwich before you did this ADR session? I enjoy Vision and everything they wind up doing with Vision, Scarlet Witch, Ant-Man. These are my Avengers. So the next few movies are really exciting for me. I'm really excited to have them here. I have some weird relationships with the order that they change stuff, and I'm rarely that guy. I'm rarely that guy. But, you know, Scarlet Witch has a weird backstory here. And I think the creation of Ultron, the way they did it all, was a best-case scenario. Joss Whedon, as far as I know, hadn't continuously, consistently read comics. He had more important things to do. He had TV shows to create, and he had art that inspired people to create new comics to create. And that's important, and that's terrific. So he's bringing some 1960s, some 1970s, some 1980s, and some this-is-what-they-handed-him to the table. And I kind of think that shows through... I feel like the battle against Ultron did not make me feel as though he'd learned anything as a director since Avengers. Or a storyteller, for that matter. The battle against Ultron... You mean this initial one? Yes. Okay. The battle against Ultron just feels like the same sort of thing we saw in Iron Man 2, Iron Man 3... The same kind of vibe you get from Cap fighting endless Hydra soldiers. It just kind of felt like now it's big expensive suits. It was an excuse to show the Avengers fighting in evening wear instead of their battle costumes for once. 
there are a lot of things about this sequence I agree that sort of miss the mark for me. Uh, obviously not the part where Cap kicks an entire fucking table. Oh, things like Bruce throwing Natasha over the bar and then shielding her with his body. Dude, she is a more valuable asset than you in this scenario. What the fuck are you doing interrupting a woman doing her job? I also found so much of the fight sequence to undermine what they were just trying to tell me about the Avengers' unity as a team fighting together. I don't think this fight showcased them as an unstoppable machine. They kind of were clunky, and they were sort of all over the place, and you just showed me that this is the end of their 12 missions. Are you telling me that they did an Avengers a month calendar and they learned nothing? And you know, it's an interesting point that you're making there, because here they're completely caught unawares uh, and are surprised by a villain. None of them are prepared for battle, so they're all just kind of a clusterfuck, versus they're working so well and with such precision at the start of the film, because they're at work, and they have their backup, and they have their costumes, and... It's almost like they'd gotten lazy and they weren't prepared for this surprise to come from out of nowhere, which I guess a lot is the point of this film as well. You're never going to be done, so I don't know why you thought you could have a retirement party. You mean, what do you do when you've suddenly created new life? The work isn't over? I don't get the reference. Well, because part of what we're talking about is that Iron Man and Hulk birth this child. Yeah. And I'm using Hulk and Bruce interchangeably there. That's fine. Thank you. So Iron Man and Hulk birth Ultron, and it's not just as simple as we create Ultron. Boom, the world's safe. Well, you'd number one, have to maintain it. Yeah. And instead, you have to deal with the fallout and ramifications of it. So ultimately, Tony thought he'd save the world by creating Ultron. But there's a difference between... Something I like to say to people a lot when they ask me, how do you get fit? How do you start working out? What do you do? How do you get jacked? All right, well, number one, remember that fitness is maintained not obtained tony stark is a very short-sighted individual he huge i can't even explain his field of vision it's like watching a disneyland circle vision 360 show it's incredible right but he doesn't understand the long-term picture to tony stark he used to sell war now he just sells peace and he's going to create peace. And Ultron is going to create peace. But, but it's about a sale. It's about a specific moment. What's sad for me, though, is I wonder how it would have gone if the thing that had been the linchpin hadn't been an ancient, infinitely old energy source that was a corrupting power stone that influences people's minds because it's the fact that it was birthed out of the mind stone that is what made ultron the way he is i wonder what an ultra i mean we we know what the marvel comics are so we know it would have gone evil no matter what i guess obviously whatever blah 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 but still i wonder in this universe if it would have been the same and that sort of brings us to the second movement of this movie the avengers after the fight and Ultron's escape to the former Hydra base that from, you know, the beginning of the movie, the Avengers are pretty angry at Tony and Bruce for creating Ultron, although they are clearly much angrier at Tony. Everything is always worse for Tony. Everyone's always picking on Tony. Why has everybody always got to pick on Tony? He's just so easily picked on. And I guess when you're the bigger target of the two, because everybody's sort of like, oh, 
Poor, poor little baby Hulk Bruce. Yeah, that was actually a note that I made during the lifting the hammer scene, the part where he pretends to Hulk out and no one finds it funny. My note was, well, at least your joke was just a clunker. Everyone wasn't terrified that you really were transforming into the Hulk, which happens, Bruce. I do want to bring that scene up because it does matter later on and it comes up in some cute ways that... Tony can't lift it, so then Tony puts on the Iron Man suit, so then he tries to bring in Rhodey. Oh my god, and him and Rhodey doing it together is one of the best things that they made sure to put into this film. I love their interactions. Their friendship is terrific. And it really is important that Cap can nudge the hammer. I think that the only reason Cap couldn't finish nudging the hammer is Cap doubted that Cap could do it. But at the end of the day, I am pretty sure Captain America would have been able to nudge that hammer. Oh, I completely agree. And I would not be surprised if we end up seeing him wield... Mjolnir somehow in Endgame. You mean Stormbreaker? Well, if all this time travel crap is correct, then I potentially mean Mjolnir. But honestly, who fucking knows with this movie? You know, yeah, because can I just for a second? I would love it if Thor had two hammers in this film. And if you wow. want to know, and you want to know what everyone's always like, well, okay, Thanos could have. No, I think the only reason Hela could smash the hammer was because she's also made of Asgardian magic. Yes. Be- yeah, there's fucking rules to this shit. Thor could kick anybody's. Ass. Don't fuck with me. Whatever. The case here presents very complicated and challenging issues, which I find to be extremely complicated and challenging. Truth is, I didn't understand half of what was said by anybody. Okay, the, the Avengers are like, we gotta stop Ulti, he's having a bad day, we need to bring him down, we have one last mission in us, and Ultron's like, I need friends. These two orphans are squatting in this place that I retreated to. I'm totally going to use them. In his defense, they're super powered and he knows it, so it's not like they're literally just random squatters, which, frankly, if they hadn't been using these characters, any other film, it might have just been random homeless people. Yeah, if this was like a 90s superhero movie, Ultron would retreat to the sewers and befriend a kid named Mikey who ran away from home and was living in the sewers, and Ultron and Mikey would... You know, form a bond, and Mikey be like, No, you're bad, Ultron. I have to stop you. Captain America, help me. My friend Ultron's gone crazy. Or, if it was two characters, it would have been his little female friend, Tina, that he has a crush on that she's clearly not interested in, and she would have been the one to fold on them, and she would have been killed. Mikey is not killed in either version. No, of course not. And Mikey would have turned good after seeing Tina die. Yep. Oh, that's poor Tina. We just... Yeah, man. It's even hard in hypothetical 90s movies to be a woman, and it's terrible. (laughs) So after Ultron is like, hey, guys, I'm a really good dude. Do you know Oliver? And they were like, no. No. And he was like, do you know Oliver Twist? And they were like, no. No. And he was like, and he was like, do you know Oliver and company? And they were like, little bit. Billy Joel. Orange cat. And then he was like, all right, well, I'm a really nice guy named Fagin. Do you guys want a job? And they were like, can we kill Tony Stark, please? And he was like, my daddy? You want to kill my daddy? That would be terrific because I have an Oedipus complex and I want to kill my daddy and sleep with my mommy, Hulk. Yeah. (laughs) Although we're going to get into, in the third act of the film, some really uncomfortable stuff about... 
gender and women and uh, and there's some weird levels to what happens to poor Helen. So for every good thing we said about, yes, two out of three boxes, they're going to exploit one of those boxes kind of terribly. We'll get to it. But Ultron decides he wants vibranium and that's going to lead us to Kevo's aforementioned Wakandan introduction. Of course, as we have pointed out, as much good as these movies do, they really have trouble getting out of their own way when it comes to diversity. And the first real introduction we get to Wakanda and the Black Panther features a white character who is one of his villains, Claw. Claw is a very different character in the comics. This was a really interesting depiction. I actually enjoy this depiction. And this is the first Ultron and team Maximoff versus the Avengers. And this is, in many ways, that sort of Loki's, like, the real monster you brought on the ship kind of moment. It's kind of like, ah, ha, ha, the Hulk is the monster. The Hulk's the damn thing again. Oh, okay. I don't know that the Hulk was always going to be their final play as part of this battle. But, yes, it is really annoying that the thing that causes the most chaos in the midpoint battle of the second Avengers film is, once again, the Hulk going smash. And last movie, it was versus Thor, and I guess they realized that they'd used up the only person on the team that could reasonably take the uh, the Hulk down. So this movie, they go and bust out Hulkbuster armor, and as much as I appreciate the cuteness of Veronica and Hulkbuster, it's just, they, they rushed to it too quickly. You have nothing left now. Well, and let's not forget part of the reason that Thor can't be there to take down the Hulk is that Thor is absent for nearly an hour of this film. Not absent, absent, but he's not with the main characters, not interacting with them, while everyone else goes off to Johannesburg to face Ultron while he's trying to buy vibranium from Claw. Thor is off getting advice from Selvig and taking really hot skinny dips in little earth pools and getting visions of Heimdall, who makes an appearance in this film. And he's gone for nearly an hour of a two-hour and 20-minute movie. That's really a bizarre choice in terms of storytelling. Especially for one of your biggest characters. Thor, while he was in, you know, Chris Hemsworth's desire to transform this character to a a funnier character, a lighter character. And I do think funny Thor works better, contrasted with the rugged good looks, the giant powerful body, the carrying a mace, basically. It's a really good visual that he, to have. So the, the funny contrast really helps it. It strengthens the character in a lot of ways, and I like it. And having the character be in such a state of transition, so keeping him so minimally in this product is one way to look at it. However, we do know that there was something like 30 minutes of Thor footage that was cut. We'll discuss it more down the line, but Thor really does get shafted the fuck out of this movie, like right now. Uh, But conversely, we get a lot of good stuff from other characters. We got a lot of good Hawkeye in the Johannesburg stuff, which is pretty cool. I really love the moment of him stabbing Wanda in the forehead with the arrow, uh, especially in juxtaposition with the fact that he's going to be the one who rescues her from the Avengers complex in uh, Captain America Civil War. 
And she had just recently gone crazy and murdered him in the comics. So that was just, like, one of those things. Oh, right. So I was just sort of like, you know what? Good for you, Clint Barton. You stab that witch in the head. I really enjoyed that they showed that it was possible to hurt Wanda. Wanda is a bomb, basically. She's so powerful, and she should be this powerful. I was saying to Kevo that by Endgame, there's only a handful of Avengers that are really as powerful as all that. You've got Wanda, you'll have Carol, Hulk, Thor, and a really good armored Iron Man. They kind of represent the upper echelon of power of the Avengers team. Doctor Strange, obviously. I think he should be counted up there, but I don't really know what they're doing with magic in this universe. Magic does seem to just be another form of energy, and the stones seem to be energy that are also magic that is also another form of energy. And so I really enjoyed seeing Wanda able to be injured, because mm. I was starting to feel like it's it's next to impossible to hurt a speedster. That's something that's really important to keep in mind with a speedster like Quicksilver. He moves so fast, it's so unreasonable for someone to defeat him. I actually don't think Quicksilver's death at the end of this movie is a bad decision. I think he would have made the Thanos fights much more complicated. Not that not that Thanos couldn't have punched him to death. You know what I mean? He's fucking Thanos. But also, at the same time, Quicksilver's super speed, even in this movie, there's times where I'm like, no, that uh, Quicksilver should have taken care of that. Or, no, nah, he should have gotten that. You know what I mean? There's just things where a speedster makes things complicated, says the man who writes a super speed character. Uh. I felt that the twins were depicted as able to take down the Avengers by themselves multiple times. And then once you add the more powerful of the two to the team, now you've overpowered the Avengers. So seeing her able to be brought down by that arrow, when we knew before we saw this movie that Scarlet Witch would be joining, that moment really did help me understand how that would be possible. And I appreciate that it wasn't in any way that diminished her capacity as a fighter or a member of the team. A lot of times, especially with this fragile girl type trope of a character, they would really lean into that and have that be the reason that she is easily undone. No, it's that he was fighting her and he slammed a fucking arrow in her head. Like, that was clearly warrior against warrior type tactic. And it was a technological device that was designed to interfere with her ability to think. It's like got electric stuff and it's zapping her in the head. It's not just like he stabs her in the head with an arrow and she's dead. You know, he's purposely messing with her ability to think. And she even says it was hard to think. It hurt me. Contrasted with what I thought was kind of the underwhelming and boring first battle, I enjoyed this more, even though parts of it felt a bit uneven. That does bring us to the part I liked the least which was the reveal of Veronica being the Hulkbuster armor and, you know, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. Kevo, what did you think about this fight? As somebody who had never seen Iron Man in the Hulkbuster armor take on Hulk before, did this fight have the kind of payoff impact that they were relying on it having? Um, that is a very good question. I don't know if I would say it 100% accomplished its goal. I enjoyed it. I think, frankly, this was 
this was the only place they could have done it for the rest of the MCU as we know it, which I am, you know, dubbing the 22 films that will lead us through Endgame. There wouldn't be a lot more opportunities to bust out a Hulkbuster-type armor. Do I think it's really fast, quote-unquote, you know, for the 11th film of a 22-film arc? Do I think it's really fast for this character to introduce that? Yes, I think they executed it about as well as they could. He didn't go mad through any fault of Banners or even the Hulks. It's that he was influenced by Scarlet Witch. And knowing that, frankly, Tony throughout this entire film is technically still influenced by the Scarlet Witch. I hadn't thought about it until watching it on this time, but it's the Mind Stone's energy of the vision that propels tony to create ultron so like that's how friggin' powerful this magic is that even when you think you're perfectly fine it's affecting you so i can only imagine because we don't see anything going on inside his head what's going on with the hulk and why he's been driven this mad so i think it was a good opportunity but i can absolutely see where for fans of the hulk with this being the like, third battle that the Hulk could be a valuable part of for him to once again be the antagonist, it can be really annoying. You kind of, if he's going to be an Avenger, just want to see the Hulk being a friggin' Avenger, you know? I agree. I think Hulk has taken off the game board too frequently in his own team movies. In some ways, though, it is necessary to the structure of the plot. We needed a reason why the Avengers would have to so fully retreat completely off the grid. I don't like them needing it to happen for them to be able to do that, but I can see where it was useful. Other than that, the only notable thing that happens here in this second act, the second issue, that's worthy of being noted would be from the Thor sequence where we see parts of his vision. We see all four Infinity Stones at parts, and we also see a flash of Vision's eyes, which is kind of cool and a very easy thing to insert when you know that that's going to be coming later in the same film. It really it really stuck in my craw, though, the fact that he sees all four stones. As far as we're aware at the beginning of this film, Thor has no idea that the Power Stone has been recovered by Xandar and the Nova Corps. He could. He never says, I know that this thing was recovered. He just talks about how four have come up recently. But four have come up recently to the audience, not to these characters directly. The only stones, once they realize that the Scepter and the Tesseract are stones, the only ones that Thor is really aware of are those two and the Aether. As far as we know, none of them have any idea about the Power Stone. So it's one of those moments where I don't know if a line should have been written or if it was just as the writers, they forgot what the audience knows versus what the characters know. It it bugged me, though, but um, it'll come up again, that moment specifically that Thor says that later in the film as we discuss the final two acts. Joss Whedon actually does have a little trouble keeping track of his own references, and he kind of likes to play games with little things like that. There is no point at which Olaf is referred to as a troll god in Season 5, but out of nowhere, Anya is like, Need to fight a god? Use the weapon of a god! This troll hammer! Uh, And there's really no context for it. And, you know, Tara's actually only in her weird, magically brain-altered state for a matter of realistically like 50 hours 
and it's like, oh God, she's been through it for so long. And they kind of talk about it like it's been the month of airing it took. It's just something Joss has a habit of getting caught up in. And I don't blame you for being annoyed by it because I'm annoyed by it as well. So I believe the farm is kind of a really good split moment. The farm is a really great time for us to take a step back and say, wait a minute, this isn't the movie I signed up for. Kevo, do you have any other thoughts on the first half of Avengers Age of Ultron? That is a very good question. You know, there's hits and misses. I don't hate all of it. We haven't gotten to any of the uncomfortable procreation stuff yet, thankfully. So that's a blessing. You know, I'm in it for the ride. I'm enjoying Robot Alan Shore. And I do agree with you. I'm in it for the ride. Like I said, I believe this watch is better in a streamed all straight through method. We're doing these a little bit further spread out, but... In the way people now digest media in this binge form, I think Age of Ultron is just more of a road bump than anything. You get some great characters out of it, and because so many of them are reinforced in Civil War, it immediately makes Age of Ultron seem a little less meh. So, Kevo, until the next time we get together to discuss Alan Shore, world-destroying robot, Hmm. where can everybody find you? You can find me on the Twitters and on the Instagrams at Kevorelly, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. You can also see my color work, Nico's writing work, and a whole bunch of other great stuff over at KidRiotComics.com, where you can find our queer superhero comic for free. And hey, on that topic, don't forget to check out our Kickstarter. We're kickstarting an amazing Riot Badge enamel pin. You can check that out on our website. We'll also have links for it on the Cage Club. Uh, feel free to jump in on that. You can also check out my music at facebook.com slash action duo where I make throwback R&B with my buddy Adam. And hey, if you're already checking us out on Cage Club, don't forget to check out our other show, X is for Podcast, where Kevo and I, along with our boyfriend Jonah and our best friend Kyle, take a look at the X-Men franchise starting in 1975. And there's Now and Again, where Chris, my best buddy from childhood, and I take a look at the Now That's What I Call Music series. Don't forget to check me out on tweeters and Instagram mm-hmm. at Nico Action N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N and guys as always it's been an amazing spending this hour with you and we look forward to coming back next time to keep agent ultron Woohoo!